welcome back to Mox Madness. Yeah, we are doing it again. And as is tradition when Nathan isn't dying of the plague, I still am, but it's not the point. Let us know. But this was only the immediate cause. If there had been no widespread political corruption, North and South, there would still have arisen an absolute difference between those who were trying to conduct the new Southern state governments in the interest of the mass of laborers, black and white, and those North and South who were so late or who were determined to exploit labor, both in the agricultural and in industry for the benefit of an oligarchy. Such an oligarchy was, in effect, back of the military dictatorship, which supported these very southern labor governments and which had to support them either as laborers or by developing among them a capitalist class. But as soon as there was understanding between the southern exploiter of labor and the northern exploiter, this military support would be withdrawn and the labor governments, in spite of what they had accomplished for the education of the masses and in spite of the movements against waste and graft, which they had inaugurated, would fail. Under such circumstances, they had to fail. And in a large sense, the immediate hope of the American democracy failed with them. Yeah, now th- and this is where we talk about we got to get a new material analysis. Yeah, I know I'm already jumping in. <laughs> it's fine. But, it's fine. Um, this is where we get into the material analysis where you've got to see what's behind stuff, right? Because it's easy to blame the end of reproduction nebulous on racism. And obviously racism was a huge factor. If you had the white and the black working classes united against the oligarchy, like you know, Du Bois said earlier – yeah, I mean, they would have won. Um, yep. But the real demise, the reason that the things is because the alliances that were formed fell apart in the interest of capital. It, and it raises its head once again that like capitalism is not an immediate end to racism. And to some degree, you almost can't end capitalism without any racism. But you, the same token, you can't end racism without any capitalism. You have to fight those fights together. It's the same revolution. Amen. Let us now follow this development more in detail. In 1863 and 1864, Abraham Lincoln had made his tentative proposals for reconstructing the South. 10%, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know what? Oh, something that came up and it, ah, a re-listen to the dollop. Um, yeah. We, we talk about the 10% plan and the, the concept of how ridiculous sure. it is that oaths of loyalty yeah. get you back into the union. <laughs> um, John Wilkes Booth was arrested for yeah. sedition against the government. Like, for sure. For, he, because he went out and said, horrend- he was an absolute southerner born and bred like he absolutely espoused the views of the south he absolutely was on the side of the confederacy and he got arrested and the thing that got him out of jail the only thing he had to do to get out of jail was give an oath of loyalty to the union (laughs) and he did that and then he capped linko in the back of the brain i was about to say so linko got capped by Linko, by extending his 10% plan specifically to John Wilkes Booth as an individual. Linko got done in by his own naive neoliberal bullshit. <laughs> Hoist it on your own petard, Linko. Uh, go fuck yourself. 
Um, also, go listen to the band Kill Lincoln. Uh, I've only I've only heard one of their albums, but they have the best band name I'm, in the history of time. It is great, but I'm still worried about the one song being like it's saying something like Ronald. No, my hero it has nothing to do with Reagan. I promise. It's, okay, it's McDonald, man. It's fine. Um, okay, that scares the shit out of me. It's good. No, they're they're good people. Um, so, he uh, let us now follow this development more in detail. In 1863 and 64, Abraham Lincoln had made his tentative proposals for reconstructing the South. He had left many things unsaid. The loyal-minded, consisting of as few as one-tenth of the voters whom Lincoln proposed to regard as a state, must naturally, to survive, be supported by the United States Army until a majority of the inhabitants acquiesced in the new arrangements. It was Lincoln's fond hope that this acquiescence might be swift and clear, but no one knew better than he that it might not end. <laughs> you got it. No one, no one knew better than Lincoln. Speaking of the story Nathan just brought up. He was careful to say that Congress would certainly have voice as to the terms of which they would recognize the newly elected Senate senators and representatives. This proposal met with the general approval of the country, but Congress saw danger and enacted the Wade Davis bill. This did not recognize Negro suffrage and was not radically different from the Lincoln plan, except that the final power and assent of Congress were more prominently set forth. So they all agreed with everything Lincoln set forth. They just wanted to be the boss in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Lincoln. Sounds like modern political parties. Oh, of course. And in, in keeping with modern political artists, Lincoln did not oppose it. He simply did not <laughs> want his hands permanently tied. The bill failed, leaving Lincoln a make it, leaving Lincoln making a careful study of the situation and promising another statement. He was going forward carefully, hoping for some liberal movement to show itself in the South. <laughs> no, there won't be a liberal movement in the South. There will be a communist movement in the South. Uh, you, you dumb motherfucker, read hammer and hoe. Um, but there will not be a liberal movement, uh, and delicately urging it. In the election of 1864, the country stood squarely back of him. The Northern democracy carried only New Jersey, Delaware, and Kentucky, but he died. <laughs> Married the lead there, Lumen Du Bois. Oh, God damn it, Du Bois. I love you so goddamn much. But he died. And Andrew Johnson took his place, David. <laughs> Thus, suddenly, April 15th, 1865, Andrew Johnson found himself president of the United States. Six days after Lee's surrender and a month and a half after the 38th Congress had adjourned on March 3rd. It was a, the drear destiny of the poor white South that deserting its economic class and itself became the instrument by which dem democracy in the nation was done to death. Race provincialism deified and the world delivered to plutocracy. The man who led the way with the unconscious paradox and contradiction was Andrew Johnson. Lately, the early life and character of Andrew Johnson have been abundantly studied. He was a fanatical hater of aristocracy. Through every public act of his runs one consistent unifying thread of purpose, the advancement of the power, prosperity, and liberty of the masses at the expense of entrenched privilege. Hmm. The slaveholding yeah, slave hmm. aristocracy he hated with a bitter, enduring hatred born of envy and ambition. If Johnson were a snake, said his rival, the well-born Isham G. Harris, he would lie in the grass to bite the heels of the rich men's children. 
The very thought of an aristocrat caused him to emit venom and lash about him in fury. So again, you're starting to to hear these these the the white working class as the working class talking points in their real real origin and the uh, the you know we're just outsiders looking for the small man. Um, his political methods were those of the barnstorming demagogue. So maybe we talk about Reagan being proto-Trump, and he really was. Maybe Andrew Johnson maybe was proto-Trump. Andrew Johnson. <laughs> Except Andrew years. Johnson actually hated aristocracy, and, and Trump gold plates his ass. But language-wise and demagoguery, right? But but language-wise and demagoguery, you okay? Um, Johnson's speeches were tissues of misattachment, misrepresentation, and insulting personalities directed to the passions and unreasoning impulses of the ignorant voters. Assaults upon aristocrats combined with vaunting of his own low origin and the dignity of manual labor. Yet a biographer says that Johnson was the only president who practiced what he preached, drawing no distinction between rich and poor or high and low. Do not these facts furnish and explain of Johnson's life? Do they not show why he had the courage to go up against caste and cheap aristocracy? Why he dared to stand for the underdog, whether Catholic, Hebrew, foreigner, mechanic, or child, what? and to cling like no! death to the old flag of the Union? Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> Shut your mouth! Why is it? Okay, what is the through line between Catholic, Hebrew, foreigner, mechanic, or child? <laughs> what the fuck? When was I'm mechanic, no, when was mechanic a derided class? Uh, oh my god. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's bad. <laughs> um gladly I would lay down my life, he wrote, if I would if I could so engraft democracy into our general government that it would be permanent. To all this he really, he really is the manifestation of a very grumpy Adam Smith. <sighs> no, right? Because I mean, you, you, Adam Smith hated everything about capitalism except capitalism itself. He loved it. He fucking loved it. No, I'm, I'm just gonna keep saying no. I've got I. Th- That's fair. No. That's fair. Uh, to all this, there is one great qualification. Andrew Johnson could not include Negroes in any conceivable democracy. <sighs> he tried to, but as a poor white, steeped in the limitations, prejudices, and ambitions of his social class, he could not. And this is the key to his career. There it is. I was I was trying to figure it out because it was, well, okay, he's he's on the level. He's he's trying yeah. to that was brilliant writing by Du Bois because that mm-hmm. has a person that knows how this thing ends confused and when you can confuse someone who knows what the solution is it uh, again just brilliant writing the whole way through mm-hmm. Johnson sat in Congress from 1843 to 1853 and was senator from 1857 to 1862 he favored the annexation of Texas as a gateway for Negro immigration yeah. He was against a high tariff, championed free Western lands for white labor, and favored the annexation of Cuba for black slave labor. Oh, well, there that one went. Nope, 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 nope. <sighs> yeah. McConnell introduced a homestead bill into Congress in January 1846. 
I have a feeling he might be related to Mitch. I don't know. I Mitch is a like, turtle. He might be old enough to, to be. Yeah, but say it's probably the same one. Forever. Yeah, same, same fucking McConnell. What am I talking about related to himself? Um, Johnson's bill came in March. He returned to Tennessee. <laughs> it really might be McConnell. It's so uh, close. <laughs> as governor, but introduced or induced the legislature to instruct members of Congress to vote for his bill. The bill was finally passed the House, but defeated in the Senate, and this was repeated for several sessions. Meantime, Johnson found himself in curious company. He was linked on the one hand to the Free Soilers, and in 1851 went to New York to address the Land Reform Association. On the other hand, the South called him socialistic, and Whigfall of Texas dubbed him. The vilest of Republicans, the reddest of reds, a sans culotte for four years past, he has been trying to please the North and with his homestead and other bills. I, the age old reactionary thing, the, right? The sans culotte were the revolutionary class in France during the French yeah, Revolution. They, yeah. So, I mean, he's it, he. Dare stand stand for the workers, it, fucking you know, left French or communist, or they're all the same to me. You it's know? Joe Biden time. It's an actual mm-hmm. Republican that's getting called a socialist by re- actual Republicans, mm-hmm. which is the best of both worlds. It's yeah. a real Miley oh, yeah. Cyrus situation. We're we're we're, yeah. we're super excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, the abolitionists, meanwhile, looked askance, askance, askance. Fun words. Uh, because Johnson favored the bill for annexing Cuba. As well they should. Don't want to annex this Cuba. Yeah. I would be like, mm, no, 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 no. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no, Andy Joe. That ain't going to happen. No, sir. Um, he voted against the Pacific Railroad. So he's, that's weird that he's like a homesteader and he's against the railroad. Uh, he owned eight slaves. Goody. Goody. Wait, what did he just talking about how he came up poor? How do you come up poor owning eight <laughs> slaves? Joe Biden. I'm a working yeah. class man. I own all the things. Yeah. Working class as an affect is older than we realize it is. Mm-hmm. And said at one time, you don't get rid of the Negro except by holding him in slavery. Sure. Yeah, fuck you, Andy Joe. All right. So anyway, in the midst of such vacillation and contradiction, small wonder that Lane referred to Johnson's triumphant ignorance and exalting stupidity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Johnson hewed doggedly to certain lines. Again, that age old thing, right? They're not stupid. They're just ideologically bankrupt and really passionate about it. They don't care about the contradictions. Um, in 1860, he was advocating his homestead bill again. It finally passed both House and Senate, but Buchanan vetoed it as unconstitutional. Johnson <laughs> called the message monstrous and absurd. At last, in June 1862, after the South had withdrawn from Congress, Johnson's bill was passed and Lincoln signed it. Good fucking job, Linko. Yet it was this same Johnson who said in the 36th Congress that if the abolitionists freed the slaves and let them loose on the South, the non-slaveholder would join with the slave owner and extirpate them. And if one should be more ready to join than the other, it would be myself. 
So weird how the slaveholder would be so ready to join the slaveholders. Yeah. And again, this is the age old ideology is an objective truth. Well, look, just trust me. The masses would think like this. The poor people think like this. I think like this. I, and I'm totally poor. Right. And just, uh, Johnson early became a follower of Hinton hamburger helper and used his figures. The impending crisis was Andrew Johnson's Ved Mercurum, his arsenal of facts. Johnson made two violent speeches against secession in 1860 and 1861 with bitter personalities against Jefferson Davis, Judah Benjamin, and their fellows. He called them rebels and traitors. The galleries yelled and the presiding officer threatened to clear them. Johnson shouted, I would have them arrested and if convicted within the meaning and scope of the Constitution by the eternal God, I would execute them, sir. Treason must be punished. It's enormity and the extent and depth of the offense must be made known. Could you imagine? I mean, they, they said things all snootily back then, but could you imagine right now on the Congress floor, someone being like, I'd kill that dude right there. I just fucking I'd pop. Him. I feel like that's how Mitch McConnell addresses every page that walks into the Senate. Every Senate Probably. intern is just, ah, I'd kill you. <laughs> I'd murder you and I wouldn't think twice of it. Klingman of North do back off Klingman of North Carolina said that Johnson's speech brought on the Civil War Alexander Stevens said that it solidified the North letters came in to congratulate and to encourage the only Union senator from the South labor rallied to him a Baltimore laborer wrote that the poor working man will no doubt be called on to fight the battles of the rich From Memphis, another wrote, it was labor that achieved our independence and the laborers are ready to maintain it. The New York Working Man's Association passed a resolution of thanks. Lincoln set about winning Tennessee and as a step toward it, asked Andrew Johnson to go and act as military governor and restore the state. Johnson resigned from the Senate and went to Tennessee early in March 1862. He arrived in Nashville March 12th and took possession of the state house. His courage and sacrifice eventually redeemed the state and restored it to the union. Several times Johnson spoke on slavery and the Negro. When he asked that plantations be divided in the South and that lands opened in the West, he had in mind white men who would thus become rich or at least richer. But for Negroes, he had nothing of the sort in mind except the bare possibility that if given freedom, they might continue to exist and not die out. Johnson said in January 1864 at Nashville in reply to a question as to whether he was in favor of emancipation. As for the Negro, I am on setting him free, but at the same time, I assert that this is a white man's government. If whites and blacks can't get along together, arrangements must be made to colonize the blacks. In 1843, when I was candidate for governor, it was said that fellow Johnson is a demagogue, is an abolitionist. Because I advocated a white basis for representation, apportioning members of Congress according to the number of qualified voters instead of embracing Negroes, they called me an abolitionist. What do we find today? Right goes forward. 
truth triumphs, justice is supreme, and slavery goes down. This is a Joe Biden speech. It is, and I'm going to continue it. In fact, the Negroes are emancipated in Tennessee today, and the only remaining question for us as to settle is, as prudent and wise men, is in assigning the Negro his new relation. Now, what will have that be? The Negro will be thrown upon society, governed by the same laws that govern communities, and be compelled to fall back upon his own resources as all other human beings are. Political freedom means liberty to work and at the same time enjoy the products of one's labor. If he can rise by his own energies in the name of God, let him rise. In saying this, I do not argue that the Negro race is equal to the Anglo-Saxon. If the Negro is better fitted for inferior condition of society, the laws of nature will assign him there. I would rather no longer read the words of Andrew Johnson, David. (laughs) As a reward for Johnson's services and the Unite Sections, Lincoln chose Johnson as his running mate in 1864. So there's a lot about Lincoln that he heard that speech and went, "Mm, yeah, I got to reward that guy. There's my running mate. Before the campaign, June 10th, and from St. Cloud Hotel, Johnson gave his philosophy of reconstruction. Oh, I'm excited to hear this one. Uh, One of the chief elements of this rebellion is the opposition of the slave aristocracy to being ruled by men who had risen from the ranks of the people. This aristocracy hated Mr. Lincoln because he was of humble origin, a rail splitter in early life. One of them, the private secretary of Hal Cobb, said to me one day after a long conversation, we need we people of the South will not submit to be governed by a man who has come up from the ranks of the common people as Abe Lincoln has. He uttered the essential feeling and spirit of his Southern rebellion. Now it has just occurred to me, if this aristocracy is so violently opposed to being governed by Mr. Lincoln, what in the name of conscience will it do with Lincoln and Johnson? I am for emancipating two reasons. First, because it is right in itself. Second, because in the emancipation of the slaves, we break down an odious and dangerous aristocracy. I think that we are free freeing more whites than blacks in Tennessee. I want to see slavery broken up, and when its barriers are torn down, I want to see industrious, thrifty immigrants pouring in from all parts of the country. Come on, we need your labor, your skill, your capital. Ah, these rebel leaders have a strong personal reason for holding out. I like how also he's this working man's guy, but we need your labor and your capital. Please. People who always possess both all the time. Um, Ah, these rebel leaders have a strong personal reason for holding out to save their necks from the halter. And these leaders must feel the power of the government. Treason must be made odious, and the traitor must be punished and impoverished. Their great plantations must be seized and divided into small farms and sold to honest, industrious men. The day for protecting the lands and Negroes of these authors of rebellion is past, and it's high time it was. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, I mean this is. I mean, we're we're hearing their own, and this is the great thing that yeah. the voice has done throughout this whole work is let's hear Both it themselves. in their own words. Yeah, and, and Johnson was like, "Look, I'm doing this for white people. You know, this 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 is for white people. It'd be great." And um, I don't actually care about the black people, and but but and I love this painting themselves as the victims, right? You know, if they won't be ruled by Lincoln, poor working class man, imagine Lincoln and me. We're the real victims here. So we're going to free the slaves to protect Lincoln and me. 
to protect you. Uh, During during the the campaign, campaign, he addressed a torchlight procession of thousands of Negroes and whites. He said October 1864. Who has not heard of the great estates of Mac Cockrell? Situated near this city, estates whose acres are numbered by the thousand, whose slaves were once counted by the score, and of Matt Cockrell, their possessor, the great slave owner, and of course the leading rebel, who lives in the very wantonness of wealth, wrung from the sweat and toil and stolen wages of others, and who gave fabulous sums to aid Five-time Daytona champion Jeff Davis in overturning this government. Who has not heard of the princely estates of W.D. Harding, who by means of his own property alone outweighed and influenced any other man in Tennessee, no matter what were the other's worth or wisdom or ability? Harding too early espoused the cause of treason and made it his boast that he had contributed and directly induced others to contribute millions of dollars in the aid of that unholy cause. It is wrong that Matt Cockrell and W.D. Harding, by means of forced labor and unpaid labor, should have monopolized so large a share of the lands and wealth of Tennessee. And I say of Im- if their immense plantations were divided up and parceled out amongst a number of free, industrious, and honest farmers, we are getting into some mouse shit, it would give <laughs> more good citizens to the Commonwealth, increase the wages of our merchants, and enrich to the Commonwealth, oh, no, enrich the markets of our city, enliven all the arteries of trade, improve society, and conduce to the greatness and glory of the state. Hallelujah! That's all I got. The representatives of this corrupt, and if you will permit me almost to swear a little, oh my goodness, oh, no. this damnable, this damnable <laughs> aristocracy <laughs> taught us with our desire to see justice done and charge us with favorite Negro quality. All living men, should they be the last to mouth that phrase, and even when uttered in their hearing, it should be their cheeks to tinge and burn with shame. I, I can't use the drawl to say Negro again, so I'm going to go back to normal voice. Negro quality no, indeed. <laughs> Why pass any day along with the sidewalks of High Street where these aristocrats more particularly dwell? These aristocrats whose sons are now in bands of gorillas and cutthroats who prowl and rob and murder around our city. Pass by their dwelling. I say, and you will see as many a mulatto as Negro children. The former bearing an unmistakable resemblance to the aristocratic owners. Thank God the war has ended all this. The war that has freed more whites than blacks. Suppose the Negro is set free and we have less cotton. We will raise more wool, hemp, flax, and silk. It is all an idea and the world can't get along without cotton. And it is... As is suggested by my friend behind me, whether we attain perfection in the rising of cotton or not, I think we ought to stimulate the cultivation of hemp, of, of hemp, great and renewed laughter. For we have to have more of it and far better material, a stronger fiber with which to make stronger rope. For not to be malicious or malignant, I am free to say that I believe many who are driven into this rebellion are repentant. But I say of the leaders, the instigators, the conscious, intelligent traitors, they ought to be hung. 
<laughs> Looking at this vast crowd of colored people, continued the governor, and reflecting through what is a storm of persecution and obloquy. Ob- yeah. I don't know how to say that. Um, they are compelled to pass. I am most induced to wish that as of the days of old, a Moses might arise who should lead them safely to their promised land of freedom and happiness. You are our Moses, shouted several voices, and the exclamation was caught up and cheered until the Capitol rung again. I bet Johnson really loved hearing that. I am Well then. Well then, replied the speaker, humble and unworthy as I am, if no other better shall be found, I will indeed be your Moses and lead you through the Red Sea of War and bondage to a fairer future of liberty and peace. I speak now as one who feels fear, uh, feels the world, his country, and all who love equal rights as friends. I speak to as a citizen of Tennessee. I am here on my own soil, and here I mean to say and fight this great battle of truth and justice to a triumphant end. Rebe- rebellion and slavery shall, by God's good help, no longer pollute our state. Loyal men, whether white or black, shall alone control her destinies, and when this strife in which we are all engaged is past, I trust I know we shall have a better state of things, and shall all rejoice that honest labor reaps the fruit of its own industry, and that every man has a fair chance in the race of life. Winston interpreted the latter part of the speech as directed to the whites, when clearly he was speaking to the colored people. But he was afterward unwilling to live up to his promises. As a matter of fact, he favored emancipation in order to save the Union and to free the white man and no further. Damn the Negroes, he once said. When charged with race equality, I am fighting those traitorous aristocrats, their masters. Johnson appeared to take the oath of office as vice president so drunk he was taken into prolonged seclusion after a maudlin speech. His resignation was disgust. <laughs> you got so wasted you almost got eliminated from vice president. Oh, God. On day one, the first day. Andrew Johnson, uh, idol. Uh, he was that not... Is- that is worse than how do you get fired on your day off from practice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. He was not a habitual drunkard, although he drank three or four glasses of Robertson's Canada whiskey some days. In Depending on what some days is, that <laughs> might make him a drunkard. Days that ended in Y... <laughs> in 1848, Johnson writes that he has been on a kind of bust, not a big drunk. Both of Johnson's sons became drunkards and were cut off before they reached middle life. Yet Lincoln was right. Oh, well, don't you bother about Andy Johnson's drinking. He made a bad <laughs> slip the other day, but I have known Andy a great many years and he ain't no drunkard. Johnson and by was, bad slip, he means he fell. Just straight uh-huh, up just uh-huh. fell. Uh-huh. Johnson was deeply humiliated by the inauguration episode, and perhaps here began his alienation from those who might have influenced him best. Charles A. Dana, Assistant Secretary of War, says that he met Vice President Johnson in Richmond. He took me aside and spoke with great earnestness about the necessity of not taking the Confederates back without some condition or without some punishment. He insists, he insisted 
that their sins have been enormous and that if they were let back into the union without any punishment, the effect would be very bad. He said that they might be very dangerous in the future. The vice president talked me into the talked to me in this strain for fully 20 minutes. I should think an impassioned, earnest speech on the subject of punishing rebels. His sudden induction as president was marked by modesty and genuine feeling. Carl Schurz says that the inaugural speech of Andrew Johnson in 1865 was very pleasing to the liberals of the North and made them believe that he was going to allow the Negro to have some part in the reconstruction of the states. For a month after coming to the presidency, Johnson indulged in a speech making and his words were still so severe that an anti-slavery, that the anti-slavery people became uneasy, feeling that Johnson would give his attention primarily to punishing the whites rather than protecting the Negroes. April 21st, 1865, he said in an interview with some citizens of Indiana, David, they, the rebel leaders, must not only be punished, but their social power destroyed. And I say that after making treason odious, every union man in the government should be remunerated out of the pocket of those who have inflicted this great suffering upon this country. This was exactly the thesis of Thaddeus Stevens <gasps> enunciated in September of the same year. <laughs> A that, number that of Virginia. A number of Virginians visited Johnson in July and complained that they were seeking credits in the North and West, but could get no consideration while they remained under the ban of the government. The president replied, it was the wealthy men who dragooned the people into secession. I know how this thing was done. You rich men used the press and bullied your little men to force the state into secession. He spoke as a poor white for poor whites and the planters left in glue. He kept on insisting upon punishment for the South and not only personal punishment, but economic punishment, so that many conservatives were afraid that they had elected to the presidency a radical who would seriously attack the South. This would have been true, but for one thing, the Southern poor white had his attitude towards property and income seriously modified by the presence of the Negro. Even Abraham Lincoln was unable for a long time to conceive of free poor black citizens as voters in the United States. The problem of the Negroes, as he faced it, worried him, and it made him repeated efforts to see if in some way they could not be sent off to Africa or to foreign lands. Johnson had no such broad outlook. Negroes to him were just Negroes, and even as he expressed his radical ideas of helping the poor Southerners, he seldom invested envisaged Negroes as part of the poor. Lincoln came to know Negroes personally. He came to recognize their manhood. He praised them generously as soldiers and suggested that they be admitted to the ballot. Johnson, on the contrary, could never regard Negroes as men. He has all the narrowness and ignorance of a certain class of whites who have always looked upon the colored race as out of the pale of humanity. The Northern the press had been quite satisfied with Lincoln's attitude. He had served liberty and America well. Lincoln, said Senator Doolittle, representing industry in the West, would have dealt with the rebels as an indulgent father deals with his erring children. Johnson would deal with them more like a stern and incorruptible judge. Thus, in a moment, has the scepter of power passed from the hand of the flesh to the hand of the iron. 
At a cabinet meeting with Mr. Lincoln on the last day of his life, Friday, April 14th, Staten submitted the draft of the plan for the restoration of governments in the South. The draft applied expressly to two states, but was intended as a model for other states. The president suggested a revision, and the subject was postponed until Tuesday the 18th. (laughs) Bad time to postpone it, Lincoln. Andrew Johnson became president on Sunday, April 16th. Stanton read his draft to Sumner and other gentlemen. Sumner interrupted the reading with the inquiry. Whether any provisions was made for co-franchising the colored men, saying also that unless the black man is given the right to vote, his freedom is a mockery. Stanton depreciated, sorry, the agitated deprecated the agitation of the subject but sumner insisted that the black man's rights to vote was the essence the great essential stanton's draft now confined to north carolina was considered in the cabinet may 9th when it appeared with a provision of for suffrage in the election of members of a constitutional convention for the state it included the loyal citizens of the united states this paragraph, it appears, Stanton had accepted April 16th as an amendment from Sumner and Colfax. He admitted that it was intended to include Negroes as well as white men. David? Stanton invited an expression of opinion. Several members of the cabinet were absent. Stanton, Dennison, and Speed favored the inclusion. McCulloch, Wells, and Usher were against it. The president expressed no opinion, but Sumner was certain of the president's decision in favor of Negro suffrage. Sumner sought to keep close to Johnson. He and Chase had an interview with him in a week, and he had taken the oath of office. Johnson was reserved, but sympathetic, and they left lighthearted. A few days later, when the president and Senator Sumner were alone together, the president said, On this question that of suffrage. There is no difference between us. You and I are alike. Sumner expressed his joy and gratitude that the president had taken this position and that as a consequence, there would thus be no division in the union party. And the president replied, I mean to keep you all together as he walked away that evening. Sumner felt that the battle of his own life was ended. He wrote to Bright, May 1st, 1865, encouragingly. Last evening, I had a long conversation with him, meaning Johnson, mainly on the rebel states and how they shall be tranquilized. Of course, my theme is justice to the colored people. He accepted this idea completely and indeed went so far as to say that there's no difference between us. You understand that the question whether rebel states shall be treated as military provinces or territories is simple is a simple one of form and with a view to the great result. It is the result that I aim at and I shall never stickle on any intermediate question. If that is secured, he deprecates haste is unwilling. that The state should be precipitated back. Thinks there must be a period of probation, but that meanwhile, all loyal people without distinction of color must be treated as citizens and must take part in any proceedings for reorganization. He doubts at present the expediency of announcing this from Washington, lest he should give handle to his party, but is willing and should be made known to the people in the rebel states. The chief justice started yesterday on a visit to North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, 
New Orleans, and will I like how they're all states except New Orleans? Just it gets to be its own state. Uh, and will on his way touch the necessary strings so far as he can. I anticipate much from this journey. His opinions are fixed, and he is well informed. But with regard to the president, I will not be too seguin, but I shall. I should not be so. Surprised if we had this great question settled before the next meeting of Congress. I mean by this that we had such expression of opinion and acts as forever will conclude it. My confidence is founded in part upon the essential justice of our aims and the necessity of the case, with the president as well de- disposed as he shows himself, and the chief justice as positive as we must prevail, will not at all sanctify our way beyond any in history. I but like it, having long Sumner quotes. <laughs> it's all he does, though. Like, Sumner does not yeah. know how to speak succinctly. He just speaks. No, just talks. It just, just word blah, blah, blah. Word yeah, salad man. for days um, at a time. <laughs> the next day, right I was going to say, I was going to say mouth diary, but I didn't want to insult it because he's an abolitionist. Uh, no, he's on the right side, but he still doesn't know when to shut up. The next day, writing to Liebner Sumner, quoted Johnson as saying that colored persons are to have the right to suffrage, that no state can be precipitated into the union, and that rebel states must go through a term of probation. All this has been said to me before. Ten days ago, the Chief Justice and myself visited him in the evening to speak of these things. I was charmed by the sympathy, which was entirely different from his predecessors. The Chief Justice is authorized to say, whenever he is, what the president, wherever he is, that the president desires, and to do everything he can to promote organization without distinction of color. The president desires that the movement should appear to proceed from the people. This is in conformity with his general ideas, but he thinks it will disarm the party at home. I told him that while I doubted it will work, I could be effectively done without federal authority. I regarded the modus operandi as an inferior question and that I should be content, oh my God, provided equally before the law, he was secured for all with that distinction of coke of color I said that the winter that the rebel states should not come back except on the footing of the Declaration of Independence and that complete recognition of human rights. I feel more than ever confident that all of this will be fulfilled. And then when and then what a regenerated, confident, what a regenerated land. I had looked for a bitter contest on this question, but with the president on our side, it will be carried by simple good luck. Our over deploy. Yeah, our deploy. Please. (laughs) Please. It's not enough to talk a lot, Sumner. You gotta use fancy words. God damn it. Fuck! I was Um, about to say, this is why I fucking want Thaddeus quotes. Thaddeus and me deploy. (laughs) not one time chase wrote johnson from south carolina the same month suffrage to loyal blacks i oh it was chase that actually did that last quote there's where we get over the boy uh suffrage to loyal blacks i find that readiness and even desire for it is in proportion to the loyalty of those who express opinions nobody dissents vehemently while those who have suffered from rebellion and 
and rejoice with their whole hearts in the restoration of the national authority are fast coming to the conclusion they will find their own surest safety in the proposed extension. All seem to embarrassed about the first steps. I do not entertain the slightest doubt that they will all welcome some simple recommendation from yourself and would adopt readily any plan which you suggest. I am anxious that you should have the lead in this work. It is my deliberate judgment that nothing will so strengthen you within the people or bring so much honor to your name throughout the world as some short address as I suggested before leaving Washington. Just say to the people, reorganize your state governments. I will aid you in the enrollment of local citizens. You will not expect me to discriminate among men equally loyal. Once enrolled, vote for delegates of the convention to reform your state constitution, and I will aid you in collecting and declaring their suffrages. Your convention and yourselves must do the rest, but you may count on the support of the national government and all things constitutionally expedient. So they're saying, look, you know, just tell people, I'm on your side. You're kind I'm of agreeing. You. Just just make the black people even and and we're all in. Right. It's, it's, it's the only thing you got to do. Um, obviously, it's going to prove too much. Um, in April and May 1866, Tennessee had confined the right to vote to whites. Off to a hot start. Um, the Tennessee Senate refused a suffrage bill, which allowed all blacks and whites of legal age to vote, but excluded after 1875 all who could not read, which we all know how that works. Um, Sumner wanted Johnson to insist on Negro suffrage in Tennessee, but Johnson explained that if he were in Tennessee, he would t- take a stand, but he could not in Washington. What a fucking cop out. Fuck off. I have too much power. I'm sorry. Uh, Sumner remained in Washington half through May and saw the president almost daily, always seizing opportunity to present his views on Reconstruction and insisting on suffrage for Negroes. Just before leaving Washington, Sumner had a final interview with the president. He found him cordial and apparently unchanged. Sumner apologized for repeating his views expressed before. Johnson said with a smile, have I not always listened to you? Sumner, as he left, assured his friends and correspondents that the cause he had at heart was safe with Andrew Johnson. Oh, Chuck. No, no, no. Oh, Chucky. 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 S. Yeah. Disturbing signs, however, began to occur. Charles Schurz wrote in May concerning the plans of the Southern leaders in Mississippi, Georgia, and North Carolina. Thaddy Daddy was alarmed at the president's recognition of the Pierpont government of Virginia. A caucus was therefore called at the National Hotel of Washington, May 12th, to prevent the administration from going completely astray. Wade and Sumner had the president was in no longer sorry was in no danger, and that he was in favor of Negro suffrage. Sumner may have been over Seguin and read into Johnson's words more than Johnson intended, but it is certain that Sumner received a definite understanding that President Johnson stood for real emancipation of Negro suffrage. Here then was Andrew Johnson in 1865 born at the bottom of society and during his life a radical defender of the poor the landless and exploited in the heyday of his early political career he railed against land monopoly in the south after the civil war he wanted the land of the monopolist divided among the peasant peasant proprietors suddenly by the ah! weird magic of history keep going uh, 
by the weird magic of history, he becomes military dictator of a nation. He becomes the man by whom the greatest moral and economic revolution that ever took place in the United States, and perhaps in modern times, was to be put in effect. He becomes a real emancipator of four millions of black slaves who have suffered more than anything he had experienced in his early days. They not only have no lands, they have not owned even their bodies, nor their clothes, nor their tools. They have been exploited down to the ownership of their own families. They have been poor by law and ignorant by force. What more splendid opportunity could the champion of labor and the exploited had to start a nation towards freedom? Johnson that is took a over very Lincoln. good question, and we'll answer that question next oh. week. I tried to cut you off last time. Let me cut you off Sorry. eventually. Sorry. No, I'm joking. No, thank you for, for reading as far as you did. Um, as is tradition with the second episode of our week, we're, we're going to keep this outro short for, for Nathan, at least. Um, if you would yeah. like to contact us, you could contact us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. If you want to engage with us on Twitter, it's at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. And if you wanted to join our Discord, it's in the Dumb and Awful Discord, which is within our Twitter bio. You can click within that. Um, David, it's been one week since you disclaimed to me. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do the rest of that bare naked lady yeah, song. Yeah, no, but- it's cool. So um, obviously, you know, we started this with the express purpose of being, you know, Two stupid white guys in a basement reading is is, is what we've called it, yeah. um, <laughs> and it's it's kind of evolved yeah. to its own thing. But something it's always intended to be. Hopefully, you are in an organization, um, and within that organization, you have reading group, political education, whatever you may call it. And in that reading group, you're hopefully reading the same book, and this is providing more extensive context, another point of feedback, someone else to the discussion um, to help emphasize and and supplement that work a little bit more. Uh, Save for that. Um, hopefully if you're reading this by yourself, let's say your reading group is reading a different work, maybe a shorter work. Um, hopefully we can be your reading group. Um, and help bring to life this work, help bring the opinions, the discussion, uh, the robust understanding and the context all in here with, with me and Nathan's back and forth discussion. Uh, save for that, uh, whether it's a work where we summarize and we can essentially be your cliff notes or a work like this where we read word for word and we can be in your enhanced ebook with, with further context. Whatever it is that makes these works more accessible to you, that is our goal. And always remember, these are works of theory and theory is nothing without being put into action. And that action called praxis is rudderless, is useless without theory. They are tied at the hip. They are the same thing, and they need each other to be complete. That disclaimer never ceases to cause a little tingle in the back of my spine, but it is always good, and it is always the thing that we are here for. Thank you, David, for doing that. Again, not off a script, but off the top of your dome every single time i ask you to do it that being said this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name is david and we will talk to y'all next week bye bye